Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we have talks from John Hewson and Angela Maharaj from the March for Science in Sydney and an interview with marching CSRO scientists. But first up, here's the news. Colors. Researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison have created glasses that allow people with full-color vision to see extra shades of blue. Most humans have three types of cone cells in the retina to detect light in short-wavelength blue, medium-wavelength green, and long-wavelength red colors in the visible spectrum. The cone cells transfer the signal generated by light to the optic nerve, which transfers the signal to the brain, where the contrasts are combined and processed into the sensation of a million colours. In order for our brains to process the information from the three colour channels into many colours, at the limits of the system, there are many colours we lump together and perceive as if they were just one colour. This is called metamerism. This is why people who lack one of the colour cone cell types will see several different colours as the same colour. For example, some people can't perceive the difference between red and green, despite only missing one cone cell type in their eyes. Tetrachromats have a very rare mutation that gives them an extra type of long wavelength red cone cell that lets them perceive differences between colours that look exactly the same to most people with healthy vision. The University of Wisconsin-Madison team decided to emulate an extra cone cell by making use of the fact that with two eyes, we actually have six cone cell channels to play with. Normally, the red, green and blue channels from each eye all give the same colour information to the brain. However, the team developed two filters that divided the visible blue spectrum into one filter that only showed the upper frequencies of visible blue light and one filter that only showed the lower frequencies of blue. When you wear these filters on glasses with a different filter per eye, your brain combines the differences from the blue channel in your left eye with the blue channel in your right eye to let you perceive differences between different shades of blue that you previously would have seen as all the same colour. In tests with butterfly wings and mosaics of different blues, people could distinguish shades of blue that would otherwise look like the same colour. In designing the glasses and filters, the researchers had to take into account the danger of causing even more colours to be lumped together as one colour, and colour clashes. The glasses allow people to see the difference between various blue, purple and violet colours that previously would have all looked like the same blue. The same filter and contrast principle could also be used to create glasses that allow people to see extra colours using the red and green cone cells in their eyes ultimately allowing people to have effectively six different cones, 
and therefore extremely precise colour vision such as no human has ever experienced before. The researchers suggest immediate applications in camouflage detection, quality control and anti-counterfeiting, and more broadly, opportunities for design and artwork and for data representation. I think doctors would be able to make more accurate diagnoses by being able to see more colours on people's bodies. Biologists would be able to distinguish more easily between different species of insects and plants. You could tell which fruits and vegetables were ripe, and a walk in the forest or botanical garden will be amazing. I want these to be my next pair of glasses. The paper was titled Enhancement of Human Colour Vision by Breaking the Binocular Redundancy and was published on the Cornell University ePrint Archive. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now here's Julie McCrossan, the MC at the March for Science in Martin Place, Sydney. And our next speaker is currently a professor at the Australian National University, Professor John Hewson, AM, economist, company director, former leader of the Liberal Party. He's also worked for the International Monetary Fund, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Macquarie Bank, and the University of New South Wales. He is committed to corporate social and environmental responsibility and has been speaking for several years about climate change and renewable energy. Please welcome John Hewson. Well, thank you very much, Julie. Let me begin by, uh, too, acknowledging the fact that we are meeting on the land of the Gadigal people and pay my respects to their elders past and present. And might I pass a personal comment that it's about time we gave our Indigenous um, heritage full recognition in our constitution. I live for that day. I feel I probably ought to offer an apology on behalf of Mike Pence Given the stance of the Trump administration on science and climate science in particular, I'm sure he would want me to pass on his apologies and perhaps for not being here as well. Uh, I'm here today because I'm very concerned. I'm concerned that um, at a time where science uh, should be more relevant and useful to the development of our society and our economy uh, than it's ever been perhaps, we see a widening gap between our political leadership, between the public and between science. And it's an, it's an issue of, I think, fundamental significance to the development of this country. And anything we can do to raise the profile and significance of science, the better. Scientists are not given the status they deserve. Science and science conclusions and research are not recognized the way they should be. They're not properly funded. They're not reflected adequately in our school and our university education systems. And of course, we see political games played endlessly for the issue of science. I'm, of course, a social scientist, uh, an economist, uh, and um, I've spent my life since I got involved in public policy in the middle 70s, 
as an advisor to Sir Philip Lynch, the Treasurer, I went into that job not because I liked Phil or not because I was wanted to be interested in politics, but I believed in evidence-based policy and that evidence-based policy would actually that evidence-based policy would actually be good politics with a relatively short lag. Unfortunately, today, it's politics, short-term politics, which is the main impediment to uh, a lot of the scientific debate and discussion that we should be having in this country, and to a lot of the development and implementation of good public policy and good government. Our politics today has become incredibly short-term, incredibly opportunistic, incredibly populist, mostly negative, sometimes very personal, and not at all interested in the substance of issues. So we have uh, fake news and we have uh, you know, post-truth politics today, which should be a global embarrassment to anyone who's genuinely interested in the development of good government and good policy. And it seems to me... I think the area that, that impacts on me most and uh, has done over the last several decades is the whole climate science debate. You know, as a non-climate scientist, how would I know we have a problem? The only reason I know we've got a problem is that we have the evidence produced by climate scientists. And unusually for climate scientists, they predominantly agree on something. Right? It is the nature of science to disagree, right? to contest each other's hypotheses, to contest each other's theories, and research conclusions. But here we have something like 97% of, of peer-assessed climate scientists saying this is a big issue, a significant issue, an urgent issue, and it gets ignored in the public debate and particularly in the political debate. And not just the climate scientists, there's a host of other scientists and broader sections of the Australian civil society that have come in behind that view. Yet you wouldn't know that when you look at the way that political system has dealt with the issue of climate science over the last uh, several decades. I remember a speech made by our previous Prime Minister, John Howard, at the end of 2013 to a climate deniers group in London, one organised by Nigel Lawson, a noted climate denier. I've actually debated on the issue, but John took the opportunity to say, look, openly two things. He said, one, he admitted to having played short-term politics with the issue of climate for the entire time he'd been involved in politics. When it suited him, when it suited him to support, say, an emissions trading scheme, he supported it. And when it didn't suit him politically, he didn't support it, he opposed it. And then he made the most incredible statement. He said, I today, I've ended up an agnostic when it comes to climate science. I prefer to rely on my instincts. But I worked for the guy for eight years. He spent a few years working for me. I wouldn't trust his instincts, let me tell you. But it's not, it's not a question. It's not a question of, of, of religion. It's a question of science and scientific fact and scientific evidence. And for that to be lost in the current debate is an embarrassment beyond belief. And as a businessman, to know that this country has the technological solutions to climate, we have an abundance of sunshine, we have an abundance of wind, and we have the technologies that will allow us to capitalise on that abundance that significant national asset. We should be leading the world in the development of renewable energy research. Back in 1993, when I lost uh, the supposedly unlosable election, 
apparently because of a birthday cake, I'm not sure about that. I had an environment policy that nobody paid any attention to. But it called for a 20% cut in emissions by the year 2000 of a 1990 base. I'm still waiting to hear about how we get the 5% by 2020 off a 2000 base or how we're going to get 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2030. There is no transition strategy. Every day I wake up, I hear a different sort of initiative in the name of science and jobs and growth and so on. One day it's going to be hydro, the next day it's going to be coal, the next day it might be renewables. There is no substantive response to the most significant moral, economic and social challenge of this century in our political process. Let me finish by unfortunately reminding you of the, uh, the letters GST, which uh, have probably have cost me more than, uh, than uh, I care to remember. But can I challenge you to get science tough, please? Hi, I'm Ash and I've attended the March for Science here today because I feel that the education of younger generations and myself is crucial to improving and developing our planet. Perfect, thank you. Yeah. Do you want to say anything? I'm the same. I agree. We just, we just really need to put our knowledge forward because we have so many resources now. It's, it's crazy what the government can do and stop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. At the beginning I mentioned the four positive I suppose, values that we're standing for at this March for Science today. I'll just repeat them because we've got a lot of people who've arrived. We're here to celebrate and support science literacy and all the education that makes that possible. <laughs> Thank you. We're here to celebrate sharing scientific research, the development of public policy based on evidence and stable investment in science research. So that's what we're advocating for. Or if I could sum it up on a slogan I saw coming out of the uh, US marches, which will be on, I think, a little bit later today, one of the chants is, what do we want? Evidence-based science. When do we want it? After peer review. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure now to introduce a climate scientist and lecturer from the University of New South Wales, Dr. Angela Maharaj. Angela has a keen interest in the role of the ocean in climate variability. There's a little group down here who vibrate excitedly every time I mention climate science. They're all in blue. She also has a keen interest in transferring knowledge from universities to schools. And she's an associate investigator at the ARC Centre for Excellence for Climate System Science. So please welcome Dr. Angela Maharaj. My name's Angela Maharaj, I'm from the Climate Change Research Centre. We're all down here right now. Lick it, apparently. Okay, <laughs> I'll get really close. Um, yes, I am a scientist and I'm a teacher. Um, for the record, I don't wear a lab coat. I don't think my workplace, by any stretch of the imagination, can be called an ivory tower. I'm really tired of hearing these stereotypes. Please, please stop using them. Now, my daughter was meant to come along with me today. She's six, it was going to be her first march. Unfortunately, she broke her arm and had to have surgery. It all got a bit too difficult, you know, complex. 
Anyway, she made me an alternative version of herself. Um, so here it is, it's going to march with me. Uh, quite fittingly, it has very little re resemblance to the real thing. Um, sad, but I guess it's kind of fitting in the times that we live in. <laughs> it's great times for satire, very sad times for science, I think. So, I want to talk a little bit about my personal experience and why I think science literacy is important. And when I was 12, I read a short play called The Guilty Generation by Margaret Wood. It was published in the 50s, it was set in the year 2000. Perhaps you know it, I'm not sure if people know about it. It's basically about a small group of survivors who struggle for existence after a nuclear holocaust. Now the play is about pacifism, but for our purposes, the type of global disaster is immaterial. Now it may well have been a zombie apocalypse if it had been written today. Basically, the older people in the group reminisce about the technology and the creature comforts that they had, like electricity and radio and mass agriculture, and these people are now living in caves. The younger people say, wow, how did that work? How did you build that? You know, how did you do it? Can we do it now? And the older people couldn't explain how these things were built and made. They couldn't articulate it. They didn't know. Of course, um, as the play goes along, the younger people get angrier and angrier at the older people and how they could not have valued these things that they had. Um, you know, how they had taken it all for granted, how they were complicit in what happened that led to the global disaster that led them to a place where their great-grandchildren were much more worse off than they were. Now, I'm not suggesting that we are approaching an, an apocalypse in any literal sense. I'm, I sure hope not. And the play does end on a positive note. But as a 12-year-old, it helped me to realize that a lot of what we value at a fundamental level, health, security, comforts, entertainment, a fruitful and dignified life, hopefully a fruitful, dignified ending to our lives. A lot of it rides on our ability to harness what we currently call STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. The vast range of skills and knowledge that we require to live our lives now in the way that we've become accustomed to cannot be mastered by any single individual anymore. And we now know that intuition is a poor guide. For all our potential as human beings, we're inflicted by a whole bunch of cognitive biases. We should not trust our instincts just per se. So we need robust systems and processes to help guide our decision making. And luckily we have those. We have the scientific process. We have scientific institutions. We rely heavily on this process and our scientific institutions to maintain and progress our collective good. But they cannot work unless they are supported and nurtured, their independence is respected, and their advice is actually heeded. And this brings me to evidence-based action. For my part, I'm very concerned about the adverse Im impacts of anthropogenic climate change as we track towards a global temperature average of one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We are now exceeding 410 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This is over 40% higher than the pre-industrial era. <laughs> Shall I start again? <laughs> no, we'll keep going. So the two main things that unite our globe and don't observe national boundaries, the atmosphere and the oceans, they're bearing the brunt of the anthropogenic emissions. Now, 
There are a great deal of other global scientific issues that are equally imperative, like antibiotic resistance, water security. But to my mind, with the weight of evidence that we have on anthropogenic climate change from decades and decades of research, if we don't take action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions and we don't continue to support Earth system monitoring in years to come, we stand to be accused, quite justifiably, of being the guilty generation. taking what we have for granted, complicit of standing on the sidelines and disadvantaging future generations. My sense of the world at the moment is that we're becoming caricatures of our ideologies and worldviews, and we're losing focus on where we have common ground, basic fundamental principles and values we can all agree on that cut across party lines. I think we can all agree, I hope we can all agree, that we value a fruitful and dignified life, not just for us now, but for future generations. What we need to acknowledge today is the role that science plays in providing this. We want to see a nuanced discussion in media and politics so science can serve its role as a means to help us to make good decisions. The march, this march, is a global message that we value the role of science in our society and we want to maintain its role and integrity. We cannot afford our decision makers to deny science. Thank you. Angela, thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Angela Maharaj made reference to the fact that this is a, an international day of marching for science. Because of where we are on the earth, and there'll be a lot of people here who understand time zones better than me, but because of where we are on the earth, we are, of course, one of the very first marches. Um, and I know that many of our photographs are, even as we speak, going all around the world. And so we say hello to the 610 nations uh, that are, sorry, the 610 rallies of marching for science that are taking place around the world today. Well, we're, we're representatives of the CSIRO Staff Association. In recent years, there's been huge cuts to government funding. Uh, so about, uh, we lost 1,300 people over the last 10 years, about? Right, right, less than that, about yeah. four years. We've lost about, we lost, Almost, we lost 20% of the workforce. So yeah. it's about one in five in the last, since 2013, tw about then, you know. So it's been quite significant. And part of the reason why we're out here today is because science uh, plays such an important role, not just in terms of keeping us safe and making sure our communities' environments are protected, but also in terms of creating jobs. And that's why we need to be putting more, more funding into, into science, not less. And because if, if we're going to be competitive across the you know, if we're going to be safer in the future, and we can't do that without science and research, and you know, it's, it's, it's surviving on the smell of an oily rag at the moment. And you can't just stop and start the funding, can you? No, it's not like a tap. You can't turn on or turn off. When you cut science research, when you cut science jobs, and you cut science finding, uh, you're breaking up oftentimes teams that have been working for years, and, you, and once that research is lost, once the talent goes elsewhere, once the funding stops, if you decide you're going to put the money back into it, you've got to then rebuild all those foundations again and it takes time to scale it up. Because all the scientists will have gone, got another job so they can pay the rent. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there's a real battle for talent at the moment. In CSIRO in particular, the wages are falling behind what's offered in the research sector in the university. So it's very difficult for CSIRO in particular to attract and retain talent. And of course, some of the recent changes to the immigration visa classes could have an impact on CSIRO and the universities to attract postdoctoral students, which is a concern because it's not just about nurturing our own homegrown talent. We have to ensure that, that, we're, that we're attracting the best and the brightest from across the world. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and, and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you and you too. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Go to the website and click on the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incopatech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the Community Radio Network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, and three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.